You're listening to Project Halo, helping the homeless with awareness and learning while observing the issues and solutions. I'll be talking to different professionals and organizations across Southern California that are connected to the homeless communities here to get an inside look on what's really happening. I'm your host, Crystal Zoller. I'm talking with Gary Painter, who is a professor and chair of the Department of Public Policy at USC, as well as the director of the USC Soul Price Center for Social Innovation and the director of the Homelessness Policy Research Institute. So did you ever have someone close to you that experienced homelessness that inspired you to pursue the work that you're doing? I didn't have anyone experience what HUD would call homeless um, in my life, but instead, you know, had a, my grandfather or papa, as I called him and in Southeastern Kentucky had lots of relatives and children. Once in a while, an aunt or uncle or somebody would stay with us. They would just show up at our door and say, Hey, can we crash at your house for a while? Or those kinds of things. So it was not again, HUD homeless, which is a very specific definition of someone who's on the streets living in their car or RV or living in a temporary shelter. But, but certainly people who in my, in my family who were very poor. My grandfather, Papa, was a sharecropper. Um, and so, you know, had access to public assistance and those kinds of things. So do you feel like that kind of led you more to your path or what specifically drew you to doing your work with the Soul Price Center and the Homelessness Research Institute? Certainly started with my Papa, who was eligible for lots of social safety net programs, but only chose some of them. Actually, he was always welcome to choose free food, free other goods and services, but didn't really want food stamps, for instance. He felt like he could grow what he needed to eat there, but if someone was going to give him something, that it was fine. And so early on in my career, I was just kind of puzzled by how people interacted with the social safety net system and whether it was actually a social safety net or it had a bunch of holes in it. And so when I was in grad school, I found out right away there was a giant hole in the social safety net system. People who qualified for housing assistance, whether it was a voucher or whether it was public housing, typically had to wait a really long time to get it, which meant that of eligible people somewhere at that time, you know, one in three people who were eligible received it, and now it's closer to one in five. So for me, early in my career, I was really puzzled by this system that wasn't called a safety net, but had a big giant hole in it. During that time of graduate school, I would often volunteer at rescue missions and so forth. So I, I had some, you know, personal engagement with people who were experiencing homelessness in one way or another was this kind of intentionality around understanding this, you know, like we have a program to help housing stability, but it really only covers a small portion of people who are facing housing instability. More recently, as I've, you know, really passionate about how social innovation approaches can solve complex social problems, it became quite clear, especially living in Los Angeles, that, that homelessness is a complex social problem that actually might deserve a whole nother approach than we have taken over the last 20 years. So as far as that approach you're talking about, like over the last 20 years, would you say that that approach has kind of been a housing first approach and then mental health, then substance abuse. Mm -hmm. What do you think needs to change about that? Well, I guess you have to go back a little even further. I mean, if you go back 20, 30 years, it was called a housing ready approach. And that what that meant was that people who were experiencing homelessness, you know, would live in a shelter. And then depending on any issues they might be having, if they were starting to resolve, then they were offered something that was a little bit more permanent. And then if that worked out, they then were offered permanent housing. And so housing ready meant you had to kind of almost 
as someone who was experiencing homelessness, prove first that you were ready, and then you actually received permanent housing resources. Housing first as an intervention had a different theory, which said you first have to provide people stability and housing before programs like mental health services, substance abuse disorder services could actually work. And what we found in LA, in Washington, in Baltimore, in New York, is that that was much more effective. And I think what really made housing first as an approach become HUD standard was simply that it actually saved money on all sorts of services. So what we all now kind of in the sector recognize is that you can't actually address other issues that people have unless you provide them housing stability first. It's important to keep in mind though, and not everyone has this in mind, that housing first does not mean housing only. What it means is that you can't provide effective treatment regimens if someone is living on the streets. So it has to be done at yeah. the same time. Yeah, you have to provide someone stable housing, then you can the services can be effective. We still see an influx of homelessness, even mm-hmm. with that process in place. So now we have mm-hmm. housing first, which also means the services at the same time. Why do you think there's still an influx happening? Is it not enough financial help? Is it not enough support from local government or community? To answer that question, if you don't mind, I'll just kind of offer a contrast. So if you're in a, in a community like Houston, Texas, and you have roughly 500 people experiencing homelessness, then it actually is not a large lift for the public sector to make sure that you build enough units or have units that were maybe open that you actually provide some funding to and you provide support services for those 500 people, you can actually end homelessness within a year's time in a place like Houston, Texas. We here in Los Angeles have spent decades of neglect and actually purposeful uh, in an intention around our housing market, such that now we have tens of thousands of people experiencing homelessness and over 40,000 people who are unsheltered by HUD's definition, although half of them are living in their cars or, or RVs at this time. So what that means is that we have to understand kind of, well, what's happened in our system here in California that's so much more extreme compared to places like Houston, Texas. And I think the thing that we can all point to directly is the fact that we have, since 1980s, we have not built enough housing units to match population growth. And when that happens, it's simple supply and demand that you're going to have to pay higher and higher housing costs. And if your incomes aren't going up at the same rate, which they have not been, certainly more acutely over the last two decades, then what you're going to have is a lot of people who are paying you know, more than half their income as rent. Just for example, in California, over 1.2 million households pay more than half their income as rent. And that means that there's not a lot of money left over for other basic necessities. You know, We, for instance, at the Price Center for Social Innovation, did a survey of 800 households in South and Central Los Angeles. And 20% of those households said, if I had a $400 bill, I would no longer be able to pay my rent and I could, it could start an eviction process. Like I have no resource. The other, other 80% said, well, I might be able to rely on a friend or a family member. I might be able to borrow a little money on my credit card. But you know, 20% just said, I can't do it. And so to that end, what we're seeing is that of people who are becoming homeless for the first time, among single adults, almost 60% of them are citing that they just can't pay the rent, which is a combination of income and the price of their housing. So it could be one or the other or both. For families experiencing homelessness, it's over 70% cite that that's the, the primary reason. So when we're thinking about why are there so many new people experiencing homelessness, it's impossible not to point to the fact that 
there's a large number of people who are very housing insecure and therefore they're at risk of experiencing homelessness if a you know a series of, of events might happen in their life. That's kind of first and foremost. There's also the idea of NIMBY, not in my backyard. So when we're talking about building these houses and where they're going to go and things like that, in your experience, how do we combat that as a community? It's a good question, right? So why do we have almost universal agreement that we need more housing units in California to match the number of people we have? And we also have majority agreement that it shouldn't be near me, that it should be built somewhere else. Right. In part, that's because people both believe things that are false, like if there's more density near them, that somehow their quality of life will go down. But building a new apartment building does not ruin single family homes, property values. There's plenty of studies that show that that is the case. And so in part, what we have to do is to create processes to demonstrate that when new building is happening, that communities in their fabric of communities and so forth are maintained for people. The fact that it's taken, you know, roughly from the you know, late 70s and 80s until now to put us in this mess is the only way to put it, this huge structural deficit of millions of units. Um, that we just simply were not built to match the population growth. We should anticipate that it's going to take a while to demonstrate to people that, you know, if you put a duplex instead of a single family home, that doesn't ruin the neighborhood. If you think you know, about strong, you know, smart public policies around how do you upzone, how do you build with more density, how do you connect those more dense places to the community through transportation networks and so forth, it can be done and people need to then, they'll appreciate that it can be a vibrant community. And what we've seen in, in very specific cases, for instance, you know, people have an extreme fear of having a new permanent supportive housing building, for instance, built in their neighborhood, because they think, well, if people who were previously experiencing homelessness are going to be in that particular unit, then it may somehow attract other people who are experiencing homelessness, but not living in the housing unit, actually living on the streets still. But what we've seen is that, you know, after a couple of months, people forget that that's what that new building was when they just look at it and go, hey, there's a nice new building. Right. And property values go up when you put in a new building right. or you rehab an old existing building. In that idea of it's going to take time to teach people that this is OK, <laughs> you know, it's OK to have a duplex there. It's a new building. It actually will increase your value. How long do you think that process is going to take? I mean, in a perfect world, you know, I mean, it we would convince everyone by tomorrow, but realistically, how long do you think it's going to take? Well, I think we've been in the process over the last even five years, maybe even closer to 10 years of trying to begin that process of convincing people. I do think it'll take a couple of decades. The first decade was just to pass some laws that even allow a duplex, right? We, we just finally got to that point. We ha haven't seen them being built. We also have a state government now that says we're going to take seriously the housing needs assessments that cities said we will build this many units in order to fulfill the population demand for housing. And so once it starts happening, I think we're going to see people realize it doesn't ruin their neighborhoods. But it also means that we're going to have to talk about some issues that are kind of under the surface. And one of those issues has to do with parking, to be quite honest. And we have often not carefully thought about how we are, want to manage parking in our cities and communities. 
that's one reason for nimbyism is just that you're afraid, oh my gosh, there's going to be cars everywhere, or I'm not going to be able to park in front of my house anymore or something like that. Right. And that can be managed. And there's ways that some certain communities have managed it quite effectively, but we are going to have to do some things. As far as those buildings that have been approved mm-hmm. in the last five years, they haven't been built yet, or not all of them have, or some might be starting or mm-hmm. not starting. You know, now the population that might be having their tax dollars going towards that. How do yeah. we get people to believe that those things are going to happen and they're not just being stalled or, you know, are people going to question where the money's really going? Well, we can certainly provide them with the information on, you know, this is where the money has gone. And, you know, in the city of Los Angeles with measure triple H, you know, we have had the city audit report be very clear and transparent about how much money is being spent on every unit that is going to house someone that was formerly experiencing homelessness. And then we have not just dollars, but I think we also need to have the pictures of the buildings and the pictures of the buildings in the neighborhoods and have the neighbors who are there telling the stories of how their communities have changed and be, you know, again, very transparent. I'm not saying that everyone is going to be happy with a new building, but we do know again from from study after study after study that a new building going into a neighborhood or rehab building happening in a neighborhood has only increased property values of the existing owners around them. It has not lowered them. And so to that end, I think capturing the whole story in pictures, in people's own words, is going to be actually instrumental so that political support can be built for the next set of units that aren't necessarily focused on housing people who are experiencing homelessness, but just are multifamily housing for college students, for seniors, for working families. As far as the politics behind everything, Mm -hmm. do you think that's a big factor in what's hindered homelessness being solved sooner? Well, I think the politics in terms of not building housing absolutely is a contributor. However, now or at least in the last five years, you know, the politics has said, we are willing to tax ourselves if the public sector can participate in solving this problem. And I think what we see from people is rightfully so a recognition that, you know, living on the streets is a human rights violation. This is not something that we should as a society accept and feel good about finding a 10-year solution. It should be something that we look at as this is a disaster and we should address it right now. But what that means is that the set of solutions for the immediate number of people experiencing homelessness have to be thought of as not just, you know, house everybody temporarily in some tents in Lancaster or something like that, but really have to think about what are we going to do for the first two months? What are we going to do for the next six months? What are we going to do for the next year? And building housing takes three years in the city of Los Angeles. Back when Measure Triple H was passed, it was assessed within the population of people experiencing homelessness that roughly 15,000 people had chronic conditions and were at high risk of being homeless over the long term. Would those chronic conditions include mental illness, drug abuse, or alcohol substance abuse? Okay, That's correct. So they had not just experienced homelessness for more than a year, but they also had some sort of physical condition. It could be a physical health issue, mental health issue, substance abuse disorder. Or, or something else, you know, maybe they had just come out of incarceration or something like that. So multiple risks. And so the building of 15,000 units in part finance from measure Triple H and in part from other sources was really intended to address that population of people who were at high risk of chronic homelessness in order to get there is three years. So what are we going to do in between? And I think that's where there's been a lot of struggle is that 
we have followed a little bit of an either or approach at times in terms of how we framed the problem. It's like you either build this permanent housing or you provide more interim solutions. When the reality is, you know, in order to get people permanently housed, you have to do something in the interim. And so it should be a both and approach. Like we in our region do not have enough of any kind of housing for people who are at risk or have experienced homelessness. We don't have enough interim housing. We don't have enough permanent housing. It takes longer to build permanent housing, but that doesn't mean that you only build interim. Um, right. Instead, you have to think about and really assess like, well, how much would a robust system that would move the more than 60,000 people who are experiencing homelessness off the streets and into some housing solution, how much do we need of each type and how long is it going to take to provide it? As far as that that assistance that's needed, mm-hmm. how effective do you feel nonprofit organizations are versus like our local government organizations in helping the homeless? It's not really an Versus in in many ways, because a lot of the nonprofits receive funding from our local governments. Some of that funding comes from the federal government. Some of it comes from local sources. And so we actually do have a pretty robust system of nonprofits that are, you know, providing care. Um, A lot of that funding does come from our government sources. There is some that is just strictly coming from government, but it isn't the main source of our interim housing solutions. But we certainly have the city of Los Angeles. They, you know, built a bunch of what they called bridge housing. I'm just calling I mean, anything that's not permanent interim. But that was an example of the city actually building things. But most of our interim and permanent housing is actually either operated by nonprofit organizations or owned by nonprofit organizations. Do you think that overall government assistance is ultimately beneficial in the long run for people who are homeless? If it's not housing, if it's, let's say, it's just food or a little bit of extra money or things like that. I think you have to kind of take a step back and not just look at the small sample of extremely low-income individuals that actually experience homelessness but actually look at what does our basically economy, what does our public social safety net look like for people who have very low incomes? You know, if only one in five people who are eligible for housing assistance receive it, then there's a big chunk missing in their household budget that needs to be filled in some way or another, or they are going to be put in an extreme condition. And research is pretty clear that the stress that happens in those families does lead kids to perform worse in schools, to increase incidents of mental health issues among kids and parents alike. You know, we have a situation where the social safety net, if you will, is not robust enough for extremely low-income households at the current moment. Of course, thinking about, well, what does that mean for those families? Well, we should figure out ways and have a robust enough economy so that their earned income can be high enough that they won't need to rely on public assistance. But the problem is, if you don't have a robust public assistance program, when someone loses a job um, and they don't have savings necessarily to fall back on, it can actually lead to a spiral, put someone in a situation where they have to double up with a family member. You know, that puts pressure on that family to support that family member. And then the pressure continues to build, and then you end up with having more people experiencing homelessness, if that makes sense. So it's kind of like our system itself has two giant holes in it. It's been talked about a lot around childcare, 
especially with the pandemic and how so many people are no longer going back to the workforce because they don't have childcare. That's a huge hole for our working families. And the other huge hole is the housing assistance hole. First, you can think about just more stable kind of situations for low-income households who, if they lose their job, they fall down, they can get back up. If you fall into a deep hole, it takes a lot longer to get back up so that your earned income then can support you. And just want to clarify, so when you say hole in the system, you're talking about that social safety net. Yes, not, not specifically the homeless service system. Just in general, our social safety net. Correct. What policies need to be put into place to help prevent homelessness or in general fix those holes in the social safety net? I'll speak first to the holes in the social safety net, then we can talk about preventing homelessness. So, of course, if you fix the holes in the social safety net, you'll actually go a long, long, long way to preventing homelessness. But the two biggest things I've alluded to is that you do have to fix the child care hole for working families. Currently, unless you fall to a really, really low income level, like a mom with two kids has to have incomes that fall below $12,000 in a year in order to qualify for a robust child care wow. support, right? So if you fall that far, you now finally get child care. But if your income falls to $20,000 a year, you don't get full child care support. And so that's one huge hole. And that's why, you know, that piece of the federal legislation actually is so important for low-income working families. The other hole is in our housing assistance. I would say that the Build Back Better pieces related to childcare actually would fill that hole, right? It contains the child tax credits. It contains the childcare subsidies. It addresses the childcare system of underpaid workers, and it actually would make that robust and fix that hole. The other hole that exists, as we've talked about, is, is in housing assistance. We have a you know, housing choice voucher or public housing set of programs that only are provided to one in five households who are eligible for them. So we have to think about universal housing assistance. Now, I am not as optimistic or you know, hopeful to say the federal government is actually, you know, through convincing of some kind or another, actually going to provide a universal voucher. I'm not especially optimistic because if you think about the budgetary number of going from one in five to filling that gap, that's a big number. Right. It's a big number. And it's not quite five times the cost. And the reason it's not is because some of the people who aren't receiving it actually aren't going to cost the government as much because they're working more and so forth. But I think what we can do at the very least is say, listen, if you're paying more than half your income is rent, you know, we're going to provide you a renter's tax credit that's commiserate with making sure that you don't have to pay more than half your income is rent. Um, we've done some research in California, and it would cost roughly $6,000 on average per household that is currently paying more than half their income is rent. In total, it would be roughly, you know, nine, maybe $10 billion. That's a big number, but it's not a number that's completely unheard of with respect to numbers that we're talking about in, in California to address homelessness. Right. You know, the current state budget has identified roughly $14 billion. Some of it is like money over time. Some of it's this year's money to look at programs like Project Home Key to buy up hotels and convert them for permanent housing and other programs. And so if you're thinking, well, for nine to $10 billion, there wouldn't be a household paying more than half their income as rent, then we would end up preventing large numbers of people experiencing homelessness. But with that said, you know, there's also what I would call acute prevention. So meaning you have someone that's just about to become homeless, and if you could intervene and keep them from becoming homeless, you know you're going to save their personal suffering, and you're also going to save the system money in the long run. And so the question is, well, how do you identify that person who's about to become homeless? 
And what we know is that the person that's about to become homeless is not the person that actually gets evicted from their apartment because they're probably going to go live with a family member or a friend. It's actually someone who's already doubling up and or, you know, coming out of an incarceral situation or a drug treatment program where they're going from where they were to who knows where, right? And so you can't simply take someone from a drug treatment program and then release them, right. you know, to nowhere. How likely is someone who becomes homeless, someone who hasn't really been into drugs or drinking or things mm -hmm. like that, or how likely are they to turn to drugs or alcohol? I don't know what the exact incidence is. My colleague at USC, Ricky Bluthenthal, presented some of his research recently at a Homelessness Policy Research Institute symposium, which is available on our website. And what he identified, kind of what the incidence of drug use and substance abuse disorder is after some time becoming homeless. And the increase in drug abuse after becoming homeless was a lot bigger number than I had seen before. And I apologize that I don't have it at the tip of my memory, okay. but it was like an increase of 25% or 35% or something like that. And so his research then asked the question, why? Like, why are people, once they become homeless, so much more likely to become a substance abuse disorder. And in part, it was due to real risk to their person and property. And his research found that 25% of women or trans individuals had reported being sexually assaulted in the last year. And a good portion of those people did turn to alcohol or substance abuse to deal with some of the pain and trauma of that. Others were told, you know, nighttime is dangerous. You need to stay awake. And so they would turn to meth to stay awake so that they wouldn't be assaulted in one way or another. Now, this tells us something about the questions that we ought to ask to understand, you know, what is happening on the streets. And so what it tells us is that there's a lot of trauma happening and that a large number of people who were not um, dealing with substance abuse disorder after being on the streets are now dealing with it because they're trying to cope with the trauma of living on the streets. So clearly, again, as I said, if you can prevent someone who's just about to become homeless from becoming homeless, you're going to save them a lot of trauma and suffering. And you're also going to save the system of trying to treat substance abuse, having to treat and provide housing resources in emergency fashions, and it'll save that system a lot of money too. I do want to go back and touch on Project Room Key. Mm -hmm. If I'm not mistaken, that was turning motels or hotels into mm -hmm. temporary housing, correct? Correct. Has it been a good system so far in your research, and should that be continued to be done? Yeah, I mean, I think it demonstrated a lot of positives about what could be done quickly. If you dedicated resources and there was available units that could be repurposed to support people who are experiencing homelessness. Um, but it wasn't uh, a program that housed everybody that was experiencing homelessness. So we in, in Los Angeles, for instance, had a goal at the beginning of Project Room Key to house 15,000 people in underutilized hotels and motels. We actually never housed more than 5,000 in that program. And so just the difference between the goal and, and the reality, might people say, well, that wasn't successful. I actually would argue the fact that we housed 5,000 people with, you know, in less time than six months, that's actually a, an achievement that says that we can do it. How come the low number, though? Why only a third of the possibility of people being housed? It wasn't because we didn't have resources to do it, but we actually were not able to come to agreement with enough hotel and motel operators 
to actually have 15,000 beds available. And in part, these hotel and motel operators, I think just simply were concerned about what would happen after project room key and home key funding ended, or if it might prevent their flexibility or actually reduce their flexibility you know, a year from whenever the pandemic started. Because as you know, we none of us anticipated the pandemic lasting two years. Um, and it, you know, who knows how much longer we'll still be dealing with the effects of it. And so a lot of hotel and motel operators thought, well, I'm not going to participate if it's just a three-month thing. I'd rather not lock myself into a three or six-month contract if all of a sudden tourism will come back. Another program you might be interested in, which is Project Home Key, which is a program to actually buy hotels and motels and rehab underutilized, actually even commercial spaces. So you could actually take an old shopping mall and make it into housing if you wanted to with Project Home Key. But what we found then was that there was actually more hotel and motel operators that were willing to sell than they actually were willing to, in some sense, rent their rooms to people experiencing homelessness. So we did see that that resource could be repurposed and at a lower cost than building new housing. That is a really great point that it saves money and time because there's no three-year wait to take over a motel or hotel. So homelessness, it's increasing. I'm sure you would agree. Well, we will find out very (laughs) soon. Um, We know that it was rising from... 2015 to 2020. And we did not look at the data in 2021 because of the pandemic. And there was a big surge there. We didn't have vaccinations. And so we actually did not count the number of people experiencing homelessness. So we don't know. A lot of reason to think that it's fallen by 10, 20%. And I guess I wouldn't be surprised if it fell 20% or increased 20%, you know, when the numbers come in from the count that was just completed last month. Is there any projects you're currently working on with the Homelessness Policy Research Institute that you'd like to touch on? So the way that the Homelessness Policy Research Institute works, we try to help facilitate high impact research from a large community of researchers that don't sit at even University of Southern California, although some do. One project that I'd love to highlight is the fact that when people are assessed for need, we have seen that over the last 10 years that we don't seem to be getting equitable outcomes by race and ethnicity um, and the way services are being you know, connected to people or just the population of people experiencing homelessness you know, is disproportionate for some groups compared to the representation. In particular, the Black population is overrepresented three to one compared to the representation in the overall population in among people experiencing homelessness. And so this project is looking at how people are assessed for need because we have waiting lists for all sorts of housing resources in order to ensure equity in the way that those resources are being provided. We're looking at how can we do a better job of connecting to people who are not receiving any housing resource or any potentially any resource I don't think everyone appreciates that a third of our homeless population lives in their cars or RVs. These people are, you know, 80% of this sample of people are working, 20% are actually working full-time. And so among that group, they're very unlikely to be connecting to resources while they're living in cars. Um, And unfortunately, there's a good chunk of those people that eventually lose their car and then end up on the streets. That's a population of people that we're just not tracking well. And so there's some interesting work being done by professors at USC and UCLA who are looking at how we can use mobile technology to track what's happening within those populations. The one that I would end with, and this is also work that's happening in San Francisco at the Benioff Center at UCSF, um, they're doing work there and we're beginning work here is to really focus on what's happening with the older age population of people experiencing homelessness. I think what Project Room Key did tell us something about is that the health needs and issues among older adults experiencing homelessness were actually 
much more acute, just physical health issues than we had anticipated. Project Room Key was targeted initially toward older adults because they were at most risk to mortality and morbidity from COVID. Research is really emerging to figure out, you know, what can be done? Like, it, do we need much more acute health care being provided to people who are over 55 experiencing homelessness? So those are just a few of the many projects to really help improve the efficiency and equity in our homeless service system. Thank you. And I did want to touch on one thing I, I meant to touch on mm -hmm. earlier. How does pride play mm -hmm. into all of this? And do we see people not asking for help when they actually could get help because they're scared to ask for it or the stigma that comes from that? How do we handle that or show people that it's okay to reach for help if they need it? You know, it's a good question to think about why do people not access all help that they might receive. But I certainly wouldn't think about it from the context of pride per se. I would think about it in the terms of how repeated trauma in one's life makes one very cautious about receiving certain kinds of help if you've been hurt before. We see that in all sorts of circumstances, not just in terms of people experiencing homelessness. And so if you've had a bad experience in an interim housing place, a shelter or something, then if you're offered a shelter, you might never want to go back. You may look at what's happening in terms of just the large number of people experiencing homelessness, and you might look at yourself and in this, you guess you could call pride, but you might also say, you know what, I'm still, I still have a job, but I'm living in my car. I don't want to take a service away from somebody that is actually living on the streets. And so I wouldn't call it pride, but I would call it a way of kind of self-assessing and saying, you know, there are people that are worse off than me. And so you actually see that a lot, especially among people living in their cars. In fact, if you interview them, in many cases, especially in certain populations, um, like our immigrant populations, they'll flat out say, I'm not homeless. You know, some days I, I sleep in my car, some days I sleep in, you know, a family member's house. I don't want to crowd them, so I sleep in my car um, sometimes, and, it, and it's okay. You know, we see among college students, there's a lot of college students that sleep in their car in the parking lot at a community college, and they're doing that because they can, and they think that they want to save money for their family, and, you know, they can use the facilities, and they're not going to access housing service or homeless services because they're in school, they're trying to balance this. Yes, they'd like more support, but again, and they're not viewing themselves as someone who's experiencing homelessness in the way that is actually um, suffering from many more things than them. So we do see a lot of that as well, where people just kind of say, oh, I'm not as bad as some people, so I'm not going to ask for service. Right. So not a sense of pride, but a sense of I, I can do this on my own and it, it's okay. I'm okay with it. Yeah, for some people. And there's other people, as I said, with kind of repeated trauma and they... Right. Might just say, I don't, I don't want to do that. That's not for me. Or you're offering me something that makes me feel incredibly uncomfortable. Or you're setting a bunch of rules before I can go and understand. I can't do that for whatever reason that case might be. But the vast majority of people experiencing homelessness don't fit into either one of those categories. If you provide them housing, they will go into that housing. That, that's important to keep in mind as well. Yeah. And I want to end with this. Mm -hmm. Where do you see the future of homelessness in Southern California? Do you see it getting better or worse? And how do you think it needs to be handled? I can't see it getting worse because there's just way too many people already who are suffering. I think what's happened is that people have gotten a little frustrated at how slow improvements you know, may have happened, how slowly we're housing people. 
but there's not a single mayoral candidate in the city of Los Angeles that isn't talking about it. There's not a single board of supervisor in LA County that isn't thinking about, well, how can they do a better job of reducing the number of people experiencing homelessness? And the state government has done more in the last five years than they had ever done because they kind of viewed it as a local problem. And now the state's getting involved. And so I'm hopeful that, again, some of the measures around the housing market that can enforce actually the necessary building that can just simply supply the housing that, you know, moderate income households, you know, would like to have. And that will reduce pressure on lower income households. And so I'm hopeful, but I'm also realistic that five years from today, we might have stopped things getting worse. And then 10 years from today, we are actually going to see measurable improvements. And 15 years from today, we're going to say we're on the right path. And that's a long time. But we got here because of deliberate action and inaction in different ways over four decades. And so it's going to take some time. Do you think a non-politician running for mayor would benefit the homeless population? As you mentioned, a lot of mayoral candidates are putting homelessness Mm -hmm. at the forefront. Do you think this is actually something that a lot of them will focus on or are they just saying? I think a lot of them will focus on it. I think you'll have different candidates that focus on different approaches. And so you may have some that focus more on interim solutions. And some of those interim solutions may have some benefit, and some of them may not. You know, I certainly worry about some non-politicians that come in and just say, okay, we're going to, I'm going to declare disaster area right now. And then we're going to house a bunch of people in tents in Lancaster. I have heard that from many business leaders, to be quite honest. Like, why don't we just, we have a lot of land in Lancaster. Why don't we just put up a bunch of tents and, and that'll be the solution. And we're going to force people to move up there. We know from research that does not work. People actually like to live in the communities they live in. And so shipping them off somewhere else just simply doesn't work. Um, So I am worried about politicians that don't understand. At the same time, some career politicians might use a lot of nice language, but actually not have the urgency to address the situation, which is, I don't know how to say it other than it, it remains urgent. And The approach of dealing with just the scale of the human rights issues that we face with a disaster mindset is not at all a bad thing. But when we have a disaster, whether, you know, natural disaster, we actually have responses that say, we're going to do this in the short term, we're going to do this in the long term. I think what I'm hearing from some politicians that talk about disasters, they just talk about the short term. They do not talk about what happens. Okay, for the first three months, we have, you know, emergency shelter. And then for the next six months, we find these interim solutions. And then in a year, everyone's permanently housed through a combination of housing assistance and other approaches. That's what I I would like to hear. And I'm not hearing anyone yet thinking about it or talking about it in that way. That's a really good point. Thank you so much, Gary. I appreciate you taking the time to do this interview with me. Thank you. All right, take care, Crystal. The homeless count, which was done this year, could show a rise in the homeless community here in Southern California. We'll have to wait to find those numbers, but According to Gary, lack of housing is the primary issue. But solving that isn't simple. NIMBYism, sometimes lack of funding, and lack of space are all issues. One way to better serve homeless communities could be to support new housing infrastructure. Advocating for homeless shelters and things of that sort could help the homeless communities here in Southern California and across the nation. But as Gary Painter reminded us, we didn't get into this over just a few years. It's been decades, and it might just take us decades to get out of it. I'm Crystal Zoller, and thank Thank you for listening to Project Halo.